Oh, that was, um, that was worshiping the Lord, wasn't it? Father, in the name of Jesus, may we continue to sense your presence, to, Father, to know how much you care for us, to know how much you love us. And, Father, as we look at um, your word today, Father, prepare us also for a time of communion that where we will come together and, Father, break bread and um, drink the cup that represents your blood. Father, you tell us to, whenever we meet, to do this in remembrance of you. And so, Father, our heart and my heart is just geared toward the end of our time together today when we will celebrate what you did for us. We'll remember what you did for us. And Father, we will examine ourselves as we look at the scripture today too to see if we're in the faith, to see if we know you, to see if, Father, we can take the bread and the cup with a clear conscience, knowing that we love you and knowing how much you love us. And anything, Father, that might get in the way, that we will give it to you and know that you cleanse us of all sin and all unrighteousness. And Father, so Father, um, add your blessing to what is said today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you that may have, have been gone a few weeks, um, we at Calvary, what we believe in here is preaching the Word of God and going through the Word of God systematically. And you know, we may select an Old Testament book, uh, a New Testament passage, and and the reason we do that is because that, that stops us from being selective. It means we have to handle the difficult passages. We have to handle sometimes those things we don't want to handle. We want to sort of say, well, let's just pass over that and get onto something nice. And uh, unfortunately, we have to, uh, and not unfortunately, it's actually a good thing to look at the tough passages too. And it's a wonderful thing today as we come to the communion and uh, just wondering where we're at. I told Todd today, he said, what's the title? He always asked me that in the morning. And I said, well, I've just got three words for this is a convincing testimony. A convincing testimony. And so exclamation point, but maybe you could put a question mark there. Do you have or do you have a, a convincing testimony? Has somebody influenced you with a convincing testimony that can get you through a tough time or, or, or has already got you through a tough time? Or if you're going to go through a tough time, we'll get you through because life is not over. I say this because we're looking at the story of Stephen. And uh, because we're introduced in this passage now in Acts, Acts 7 and then going into Acts 8 and, and on through the book of Acts, we're introduced to a man by the name of Saul who later became Paul. And um, I've, I, I'm, con I'm convinced that Stephen's testimony convinced him about Christ and also stayed with him throughout his life and 
possibly until his own martyrdom, that it was always what Stephen did in his presence spoke to Paul in such a powerful way. He brought it up several times, which we will see in the book of Acts as we go through it. But let's look at what Stephen did. This is a man who was selected, remember, to be a deacon in the church, to be a servant, one who serves, one of seven men that was chosen. Good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. What did he do? First thing he does is he preaches the gospel, tells the gospel story in the Old Testament. And he comes down to a place in in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, when he begins to sort of stick it to these uh, religious leaders and got their goat up and got them angry and mad to the point of murdering him. When he says this to the people, he says, you stiff-necked people. See why we might want to not talk about this, want to leave it at home? But this is the gospel. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Oh, man, they're just like listening to this. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And that's getting right in your face, isn't it? And here's what their reaction was. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth. You ever known anyone to be that angry? Maybe you've had that kind of an angry outburst where your teeth just are grinding. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What was their response? But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. You know, like, uh, have you ever done this as a child? Maybe you've done it. Maybe your children have done it. Or you've done it. Just put your hands over your ears. You don't want to hear what's been said. And they rushed together at him, the mob attack. And then they cast him out of the city. They couldn't kill him in the city. They had to get him outside the city. And they stoned him. And then here's the introduction of Saul, the man who wrote much of the scriptures in the New Testament. And the witnesses laid down their garments. Mm. At the feet of a young man named Saul, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He was murdered. He spoke the truth. They didn't like it. 
And in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Mm. In Acts 26, verse 11, he talks about uh, Saul. Saul is talking about himself and um, because later he comes to Christ and we will, we will cross that as we go through Acts. But he talks about what he did with Christians. He said, I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. And then he, the reason I'm bringing this up now, he says, because and in rage and fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He persecuted in a rage and fury. What he's describing there in that rage and fury, and maybe, oh, I hope you haven't had this, but you know, you get so furious that you're panting. Have you ever had anybody be so angry at you that they're panting? I remember, and I've told you this before, I, I guess it's in my mind right now, but I remember a gentleman coming in my office in Iowa, never seen him before. He wanted to talk to me. He wanted need to talk to a pastor. He wanted to confess some sin in his life. And I started asking him to tell me his story. And he, he began to open up and he, and he, he started to talk about his dad. And I said, tell me about your dad. And he said, he said I, remember, I remember being in bed at night as a kid and my dad had come home late and he'd, be, he'd been drinking and uh, depending on the speed that he got come up the stairs, determined in his mind how drunk the, his dad was. And if he was really drunk, he was just, then the fear of God, you know, just the fear in his, as a child. And his dad would come in, and he would take his belt. And sometimes he would, if he was really, really drunk, he'd use the buckle and beat him. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because this raging fury, this panting. He described his dad as just slobbering and smelling of sweat and, and drink and alcohol and, and beating him until he couldn't have the energy to beat him anymore. And he described how he would try and get into the side of his bed to get up against the wall to get away from his dad beating him. This is, the, this is, this is what Saul was like. This is a man who was perfect according to the Jewish religion, raised and trained by Gamaliel, a man that you'll, we've already heard mentioned in the, in the book of Acts, and uh, a Pharisee, teacher of the law. But he just hated Christianity, this message of Christ, and he had such fury in him. And he had the Christians arrested and put in jail And um, but something about what he saw there when he put his clothes at the feet, uh, the clothes were placed at his feet as Stephen was preaching the gospel. I, I believe never left him. And right after this verse, and I'm just going to move move into this here and come back to this idea of this persecution in a minute. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
devout men buried Stephen and, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So with this now, you know, Jesus said that stay in the city until you receive power from on high. And with this power from on high, they were going to preach the gospel first in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. But it wasn't until the persecution came that, that got them out of the city, out of their little home, if you will, and, and taken the message of Christ outside the city to Samaria. Persecution can, drives you, moves you to serve God in, a, in places you wouldn't go without the persecution. It, it's, it's, it's something that just drives you on. I was uh, refreshed, uh, my refreshing my mind this morning of Pauline, something Pauline would often teach. But um, she had read years ago, and I Googled again this morning, the story of the caribou up in, up in Alaska and how when the caribou, they, they come south uh, uh, in, in the winter and then they begin to graze as the summer comes on and they have to move north to keep getting good grass, you know, good food. And they would just stay in this one area, but what happens to them is the mosquitoes come, and now they're getting worse and worse, apparently, from what I read this morning, but the, the mosquitoes would come and begin to just suck the blood out of them. But what that did, that persecution from the mosquitoes, it drove them forward further north where grass was green and grass was fresh, so that they said so they wouldn't die where they're at. They, in order for them to keep going and then keep having, having uh, new babies, they've got to keep moving. And it was the mosquitoes that drove them. If they didn't have the mosquitoes, they wouldn't go. And sometimes persecution does that. Tough things in life make you make decisions that move you in a different direction. And, and can we, are we convinced that God causes these things? God brings, allows these things to come into your life to say, I have better things for you. We're going to move you on. And, and you're like, well, I don't have any. Re-. And all of a sudden, things start to happen around you, and you're like, I want to move on. I've got to get into a different place. Because God has a, another purpose for you, a different purpose for you. And so the persecution caused the, the spreading of the church. And then we get into the rest of the New Testament and we see all the letters to the different places where these persecuted disciples went and began spreading the gospel. And right after this passage here in verse 4, it says, this is now the story of Philip. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And this is what was happening. God, the healer, was there for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. That would not have happened had there not been persecution had they not forced them to scatter. 
the power of God was being preached by Philip. Philip was another deacon. Sometimes we get it in our heads that, that a deacon doesn't preach the gospel. Pastors preach the gospel. Elders are supposed to teach. That's a, that's a stipulation in Scripture. Elders should be able to teach. It doesn't say that about deacons, but here we have two deacons selected to be deacons, and Stephen's already, he's the first martyr, and now Philip is now preaching. If you, if you go down to, I think it's Acts um, 16, I think it is. If I get that right, maybe it's Acts 21. Acts 21. Sorry, verse 7. It says, when, he had, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. Who was preaching in Caesarea? Philip. And we entered the house of Philip. Now, look what he's called, the evangelist. <laughs> he's... He's gone from deacon to evangelist. And who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now, now look, at, look at the, um, the, the uh, result of Philip coming, being a Christian, being selected as a deacon, being a man with a good reputation, full of, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. He's got four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Ladies, listen to this. These are four unmarried daughters who are prophesying. That means they are teaching the word of God. They're teaching the gospel. And they're in Philip's, under Philip's as a father who's got four unmarried daughters prophesying. Do you want that to happen in your house? To raise your children up, to see your children, say about boy or girl, man, my kids, they're preaching the gospel. They're prophesying. So there's Philip. Again, now, I just ask this question. This is just, this, this is just me asking this question that I ask myself. Did Philip move in the, in the, into the place of being evangelistic because of the convincing testimony of Stephen the martyr? Did he listen to his message did he watch him come to a place where he told the truth, his reaction to being stoned to death, his reaction to the people, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, and then his death, his martyrdom. And he went on out of Jerusalem and began preaching the gospel. And he became an evangelist, and he, he must have told his girls about it, and now his girls are preaching the gospel. Something happens when you're convinced by a testimony, especially when one, the testimony is of one willing to go to their own death. I don't know if you know anyone like that. I don't know if you, if you've, what your story is or who has been a convincing testimony in your life. I can remember when I was in college before I was a Christian. The man who gave me my first Bible, a new living Bible, Bruce Riley. Bruce and Jeannie Riley. 
Bruce was an older student. He was, uh, nowadays, there's a lot of older students. When I went to college in the 70s, it was more unusual to see someone uh, that was older in, in college. But Bruce was, and Bruce was a Christian, Christian man. And he was the man who took care of all our uniforms for our basketball team. And he was a, had a work ethic. Uh, it, obviously, we were a private college in Rocky Mountain College in Billings. He didn't have scholarships. He worked, he laid carpet, he did flooring, and he saved money, and he paid for his college that way. When he was in college, he had to work a job, and his job was taking care of the athletic clothes for us basketball players, and then also the football team. And he looked like Radar. Uh, if you know Radar, he looked just like Radar. And, uh, but he was a real clean-cut guy, a godly man, and he loved the Lord. And he was made fun of. People mocked him and made fun of him. And I never outwardly made fun of him, but inwardly, I thought that he, why, is, why doesn't he just join us and come and have a drink? And because and, he didn't do that. And every time we went on the road to a basketball trip, guess who I got to room with? Yeah, Bruce Riley. And I would go out with the guys, and we weren't supposed to go out, but we all snuck out. Our, our coach was an alcoholic, so he was out in the bar. We knew it. Once he got in the bar, then we all went out, and, we all, and we'd get wasted. And I'd come back to the hotel room, and I'd be pretty wasted, and Bruce was already asleep. And there was his Bible on the side of the bed. He had, to me, a convincing testimony. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was laughed at. Some of the guys would take their clothing and just throw it at him. And he had everything folded up neat and tidy. It wasn't just in a basket. And they just picked it up and took it around like, it was, like they didn't care. But Bruce gave me my first Bible. And Bruce became an English teacher up in Flathead. And we've stayed in touch. And I'm forever thankful. And he's still serving the Lord. He's still a convincing testimony. And I think about him a lot uh, often. He wasn't persecuted to death, but he was sure ridiculed in college. We tend to be like that. Human nature can be very cruel. In the end times, as things get worse, you guys, it's going to get more difficult to speak up and maintain your Christian faith. How many of us would be willing to stand up like Stephen and take it to our death if we're being ridiculed for our faith? I don't know. I, I don't want to be tested like that. And as much as I might say that I would be like Stephen, I really don't know until I would be tested. I would hope that I would be. I would hope that I've been convinced enough by enough testimonies I've been convinced enough in Scripture, and I've been strengthened enough with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that I would uh, st stand strong. The ladies are going through the book of Hebrews. Eventually, you ladies will come to Hebrews chapter 11, where you'll see, um, well, we might just turn there, because I want you to see this. 
If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you start in verse 30, 35. When it says here, Hebrews chapter 11, 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. But then it says here, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through, the, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, Jesus didn't come back in that time, but they suffered all this because they were convinced. They were convinced. They had a convincing testimony. They, they, they were convinced enough to be strong in the Lord, and they were able to say, no, I won't deny my faith. And they went to the death like that. Jesus, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that, um, the, that you're going to be delivered up. He says, um, 24 verses 9 through 14, you can read those scriptures, but where it says in there, they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by nations for my name's sake. Being a Christian, we rile non-Christian, non-Christians up, those that don't know Christ. Those that those are the are so-called atheists that say they don't believe in God. When we proclaim Christ, we are going to be hated. That is the testimony. The way they hated Stephen, the way they hated Jesus, and ultimately the way they hated Paul, which we'll see later in, in Acts. They will hate you. But uh, Jesus also said, truly, truly, in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. There is a hope with, when we put our faith in Christ that there's an eternal life that we get to live forever that is far more than this earth can offer, and if we get our eyes on that, then we can make it through this life, no matter what the persecution is. Jesus also said in John 16, 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When he went to the cross, he overcame the world. When he, when he died for us, he overcame the world. And and. When we follow him, we overcome the world. And we have to be convinced. We have to be convinced that whatever happens to you, whatever happens to me in the future, if we get to live through such a tribulation, we know we're near the end. We know it's going to get worse. We need to say that in honesty to the church. Yes, he gives us peace. Yes, he gives us hope. Yes, he gives us strength. Yes, all these testimonies are given to convince us that Christ is real and that there is an eternal life. But we have to know that it's going to get worse before we're taken up to glory. And we may be one of those that are 
set before the governors and were tortured even to a point of death. And we have to know and be convinced, like Isaiah 54, 17 says, that there's no weapon that's formed against you that is going to prosper. In other words, yes, you may die. Stephen died, but he lives forever. Paul died, he lives forever. All the disciples died, but they live forever. Why? Because Jesus died, and he lives today, and he lives interceding for us. We have to know that. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, you can read the verses 8 through 14, but in verse 12 it says, I know, this is Paul now, the one who stood by the garments, the one who was persecuting Christians. Now he knows Christ. And he says, I know whom I have believed. And he says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Salvation. Convinced that Christ can guard you till that day. No matter what happens. There's an old statement that says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's not that we go out looking to get killed, but it's just that if that happens, that our blood that gets spilled because of our faith, because, our, because of our proclamation of Christ, because of our testimony, our convincing testimony, that we're going to heaven. Be convinced of it that he's going to guard you until that day, until he takes you home. And there's no weapon that is formed against you that's going to prosper and take you out as long as you keep your eyes on him. And there's going to be people with rage and fury that come against you. We're starting to see that right now, I believe, in this country. Not just this country, all across the world. Now, we sometimes think it's new. It's not new. But according to Scripture, it's going to get worse. And when you see some of these things happening, like I'm sure you've all seen the, the, the scene of a, a, a couple sitting at a restaurant and some people just come over and they sit down, they start to ridicule them, mock them, the people there, and everyone's around, they've all, everybody's got their cameras now photographing everything, ridiculing, ridiculing, and trying to, trying to uh, provoke violence. <laughs> Provoke violence. How do we stay strong? How do we stay through times of difficulty, like the, like the Bible says, and not depart from our faith, like the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, for example, that some will depart from their faith. I don't want to be one of those that departs from my faith. I don't want to be in a time of difficulty and give up on my faith. It's easy to stand it's, it's much easier to stand up here and talk about this than it is going to be when that happens. And I pray to God that all of us can stand. To have that convincing testimony, we have to be convinced that Christ is real. When we come to the communion table, we, we, we come to a place the Bible always tells us. Paul instructed this. He said, let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're told that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that each of us needs to examine ourselves and then so eat the bread and the cup. Well, what are we looking for when we examine ourselves? We're looking to see, is my spirit 
one that might be a convincing testimony that I love Jesus Christ, that I know him personally, that I've accepted him, that I believe in him. That much like my friend Bruce Riley, who I knew knew the Lord, I know the Lord. How do I know that? Because I look inside and I examine myself and I see if I'm in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul tells us this. This is 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the whole teaching on taking communion. But in 2 Corinthians, right near the end, he said, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So here we are coming to the communion, and we are asked to examine ourselves. I want you to examine yourself. I want you to, say, to, to be convinced in your own spirit that you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in your heart. You can walk out of here and say, I am convinced. I know in whom I have believed, and I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that I can be strengthened with power so that I cannot deny my faith under circumstances that may happen down the road where I might get into difficulty, I might be delivered up to tribulation, I might even be put to death. So I ask you this morning, all of you, just to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now here's the deal. If you realize that Christ is not in you, if you fail the test, then just tell God that. Just say, God, I fail. I'm not convinced that Christ is in me. Well, Christ is here today. Christ is. Christ has been surrounding you with convincing testimonies of people that love Christ, that people that know Christ, and they've been speaking to you about Christ, and they've been saying to you that Christ is real. Christ went to that cross. Christ was persecuted, yes, but he died. He overcame the world, and he died, and he's living for you, and he wants to come into your life, and he wants to make you different, make you a new person then ask him in. Now, he doesn't just simply come in unless you, dis- you distinctly are able to say to him, Lord, I want to turn away from my unbelief, turn away from the, the way I've been thinking about you, Jesus Christ, and I want to accept you as my Lord and my Savior. And if that's your prayer this morning, then you can be convinced in your heart that you are in the faith. And when you're in the faith, you can examine yourself and say, well, now I can eat this bread and drink this cup because I know the Lord Jesus Christ. So I might lead you in a prayer. Maybe if that's you, just say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm listening to this message and I've been listening to messages now for several weeks and or however long it is I've been searching out this faith, this idea of faith in Christ. And today, I am turning away from my life, my old life, the things that have held me back. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. And I'm asking you to come into my life and to change me. I want to be born again. I want to be made new.
And I want to eat of this bread and drink of this cup and recognize that I can, I can do that as a Christian, as a believer. And uh, Father, for those of us here today that are, are looking at this table, looking at the bread, looking at the cup, we don't want to take this lightly. We all examine our own hearts and say, Lord, where have we fallen short? Where have we not measured up? And Lord, in Jesus' name, would you just forgive us and cleanse us and fill us fresh in you this morning with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we recognize that you love us so much. You died for us. You are the most convincing testimony of all. Everybody ran away from you, but you still loved us. When you said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, you were speaking to us. Well, we know what you did, Lord. You died for us. We accept that. We receive that. And we are going to celebrate by taking this bread, taking this cup together as a church, as a congregation, because of what you've done, what you've convinced us in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to ask your elders to come forward, and uh, we're going to pass out this bread. We've, you've heard the message.